I'm Professor Bob Hewish from the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. You're listening to GDP, the Global Development Primer, the podcast dedicated to all issues in international development studies. Follow me on Twitter at Professor Hewish. This episode of GDP, the Global Development Primer podcast, we're very happy to have Mark Lowcock join us. Mark was appointed United Nations Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs and Emergency Relief Coordinator in May of 2017, and he served in that role until June of 2021. He was previously Permanent Secretary of the United Kingdom's Department for International Development. As one of the most distinguished international public servants, Mr. Lowcock has spent more than 35 years leading and managing responses to humanitarian crisis across the globe. He's authored opinion articles for the Washington Post, Financial Times, The Guardian, The Times, Le Monde, and CNN, amongst others. He was twice awarded medals by Queen Elizabeth II for services to international development and public service, including a knighthood in 2017. He's visiting professor of practice and development of international development at the London School of Economics and a distinguished non-resident fellow at the Centre for Global Development. We're very happy to have Mark Lowcock join us today on GDP. Mark, hello. Bob, hello. Thank you so much for the introduction. It's great to be here. One of the reasons, you know, I'm so happy to be having this discussion with you today is I've tried to distill what I've learned over, as you just said, quite a long period in dealing with development problems and humanitarian problems and writing them up in a in a book which is mostly about my experience in the united nations trying to coordinate humanitarian response but draws on my earlier experience as well and um i hope it will be of interest to all all your listeners to um hear us talk about how the issues we face today have a, an origin and a context in that earlier period that I've been um, engaging in things on. My book is out um, in mid-May, um, and if people are interested in what we talk about, I hope they will take the chance to follow up a bit further. That's Yes, no, thank you for mentioning that. The, uh, the title, if I'm not mistaken, is uh, Relief Chief, a Manifesto for Saving Lives in, in Dire Times. Uh, it's a just a table of contents here that that I've had the, the chance to have a look at uh, is, is gripping. I mean, uh, we're we're talking about very contemporary humanitarian crises: uh, the, the the Rohingya, uh, Yemen, uh, this is the case of Syria, and and other catastrophes, and not just always with 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 conflict, but also natural disasters and the coordination of that uh, as well. It, it seems like a you know a fascinating career that's uh, that's going to be put into this this work yeah and i you know i've learned a couple of big things through this whole experience i mean the first thing is humanitarian agencies basically do a very good job saving lives in wars and pandemics and conflict zones the responses that i was involved in coordinating at the un reach more than 100 million people a year and certainly save millions of lives every year and we were able to raise more money um, over the last several years to deal with what was a growing range of problems. But the second thing, you know, I learned really was that 
at the moment, the response agencies are increasingly overwhelmed by a growing volume of crises, wars, the pandemic, obviously, which we'll talk about, the impacts of climate change, and so on. And what the world is doing is responding to the symptoms, people being displaced, people starving, people losing their access to healthcare. And one of the problems is, if what you do is respond to the symptoms of something, not its causes, you don't make it better. You can save lives, but you really need to um, look at the causes as well. And one of the things I've tried to do in the book is make a lot of quite detailed proposals on how to make the whole response system more effective and um, more efficient so that it deals not just with the symptoms, which it needs to do well, but also with some of the underlying issues. And and of those issues, I mean, you know, I would uh, hope we can get our conversation going about uh, the humanitarian crisis coming out of Ukraine. But before we, we get there, uh, you know, one of the, the challenges that I've, I've heard and studied and read about is that when there is a humanitarian crisis underway and the major organizations that do the work very well to help people in these, in these crises uh, come together, that there's always a sort of scramble of funds and resources. And many people are, are curious, you know, what's the best way to, to donate or how do we help in, in these times of crisis? And is that a, another part of the equation in, in that, uh, you know, funds and money is, 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 is is uh, drawn together, but is it always put to the best use? I've, I've heard that uh, that comes many, many times in, in circles of international development. Yeah, so there's a, there's a couple of key features of the international humanitarian system which drive a lot of what gets done. The first is that it's basically very reactive. It doesn't do a good job in forecasting or anticipating problems. And if, if all the time you're reacting to something, you tend to be behind the curve the whole time. And you have responses which are too slow and they tend to be more expensive than if you acted earlier. And I made a, quite a lot of proposals in the book about how to get a much more anticipatory response when we know a problem is coming. And often we do because... You know, we have data and analysis which can tell us problems are coming. When we know it's coming, we should act much faster and we'll get less suffering and a smaller bill for taxpayers. The second feature, though, of the humanitarian system is that it's made up of a very large number of voluntarily financed organizations, UN bodies like UNICEF or the World Food Programme, the Red Cross Red Crescent family, and international NGOs. Now, they all individually do a good job, largely, but they're all also competing for resources, and they tend to have discrete specialisms. So the World Food Programme focuses on food. UNICEF focuses on children and health. And if your focus is in a particular narrow area, obviously, you're competing for resources to deal with that dimension of the issue, rather than, you know, a comprehensive response. And one of the one of my jobs coordinating all of this for the UN and the NGOs over the last four or five years was to try to make sure all the big issues were adequately financed and to try to persuade these organizations who spend much of their time competing for resources with the donors that in fact their interests are also well served by collaborating. 
So a lot of what people complain about, about the humanitarian system, in fact, arises from those two features of it, which are not the choice of the agencies. They are the result of decisions taken by governments around the world over the last 50 years. Right. And and it sounds just as you very clearly described there, that there's there's different organizations with different portfolios that certainly have immediate need in times of crisis. And when those shops get set up and, and there's, there's money going to food and money going to children and money going to medical supplies and resources, when those crises come downstream in that way, you can see how everyone's got a unique job. But if, if I hear you, you're, you're, you're suggesting that there'd be more attention on the upstream, the prevention. And would that require some sort of better inter-collaboration between major UN organizations or even other uh, non-governmental organizations to, to, to go beyond what their their comfort zone, what their their shop is, and to actually find ways of... Yeah, I mean, the main thing... It, the, so you're right. I agree with your analysis. That the main thing that is required to operate in a more proactive, anticipatory way is for the people who pay the bills for all these agencies, the donor countries and individuals, to provide money up front, in advance. You know, we can predict when the next famine will happen. We can predict days in advance when a country will be affected by floods or um, major storms or so on. Most of the problems we deal with, we get lots of notice of. You only get 10 seconds notice of, a, of an earthquake if you're lucky, but other things you get lots of notice of. And if you are um, already have a plan in place to deal with predictable contingencies, if you've persuaded people to give you money in advance, then you can do a lot before the problem crystallizes. And that is one of the most important opportunities that now exists because of essentially because of data um, and modern technology to, um, you know, make the system more effective for everybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and with that, with that data, with that knowledge, I mean, that, that does require to have the means to, to use intelligence and to use data collection effectively. And where my mind's going with this is the current humanitarian crisis coming out of Ukraine, that there were many, many governments, many political actors who just could not believe that something like a full-scale invasion of Russia into Ukraine would would occur, let alone lead to this sort of scenario. Uh, even though there were some some states, some who were saying this is likely to happen, we we shouldn't take this uh, at face value in terms of military exercises around Ukraine's border. This is going to get bad fast. Uh, are there lessons from from what you've you've put forward in your book and your previous work to to suggest what we should be doing now? in Ukraine and maybe what we could have done better leading up to, to this crisis? I do think that the Ukraine crisis is a paradigm shifting event. You know, it's very unusual for um, this kind of aggression by a powerful military on its neighbor. That's not something we've seen a lot of um, over the last several decades. You really have to go back to the Second World War to see this kind of thing. And so it did, genuinely did, catch a lot of people by surprise. What's also caught people by surprise, though, is the fact that the 
aggression is characterized by an abandonment of respect for the international humanitarian law, the principles which really beginning in the middle of the 19th century, but reinforced with the Geneva Conventions from the second half of the 1940s, have governed how military entities behave in conflict. The the origins of international humanitarian law, in fact, had their roots in um, hard, brutal rail politique. In the middle of the 19th century, people were seeing huge numbers of men killed and wounded on battlefields with little attention paid to their plight. And the parties to conflict decided it would be in everybody's interests if when soldiers were wounded, they were able to get access to medical support and if that was respected by all parties. And um, one of the reasons that they wanted to do that was in order to sustain their recruitment of soldiers. So the origins of international humanitarian law were rail politique, basically. But then in the light of the huge atrocities of the Second World War in particular, a um, different mindset started to be um, more common, um, where empathy and um, a general principle that, for example, civilians should be um, protected, that there should be things that shouldn't be done in wartime, there shouldn't, for example, be weapons of mass destruction used, there shouldn't be the targeting of hospitals, there should be systems which allow the Red Cross and other humanitarian agencies to get access to um, civilians and people not fighting. Those things became part of the commonly accepted practice for more than 50 years after the horrific experiences of the Second World War. But what's happened over the last 10 years is that there's been a gradual decline in compliance with those basic rules. For a long time after the Second World War, there was a high degree of compliance with this international humanitarian law, Geneva Conventions construct. But it started to be eroded in a substantial way from about 10 years ago, firstly through the behavior of extremist jihadi groups, Islamic State, Al-Qaeda, Boko Haram, those kind of groups. But then also, um, starting with the behavior of the Russians in Chechnya, and then crucially um, about beginning seven or eight years ago with how the Russians were allying with the Syrian authorities in the civil war there, we saw those behaviors start to change. And I spent a lot of my time when I was at the UN drawing attention in the Security Council to flagrant breaches of international humanitarian law, the Russians and Syrians bombing hospitals, deliberately trying to starve civilian populations into submission through sieges. As you remember as well, the Syrians um, use chemical weapons, one of the great taboos of the modern era uh, during that conflict. And what, what that should have given us a sense of is that we're seeing this fraying of compliance with international humanitarian law. And we've seen that really on an industrial scale in Ukraine. It appears that the Russian authorities have decided that the long-standing laws of war don't really work for them anymore. They don't really believe in them anymore. And that is a sense in which this is a significant paradigm shift. 
and that's that's really disturbing. Like we're we're hearing that there's <clears throat> there's war crimes being committed from what reporters are showing, what uh, Ukraine soldiers are, are are showing through video, and now we're even seeing like brutal weapons like uh, flechettes being being used, sort of bombs that are just intended to be loaded with shrapnel that uh, if they don't instantly kill, they certainly permanently maim, and 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 it's. It's it's disturbing to think, as you said, it's a departure from agreed policy on Geneva Convention and, and how there was an agreement about what the rules of war were like. So do we have a sense, I mean, as, as to why there would be this departure now? We, we've seen it, as you said, with, with Syria, with Assad, who figured he could flout the rules. And now we're seeing it with uh, with Putin. Is there anything that explains this departure from from the norm? Well, I think it's really hard to understand it. I don't think we've got to the bottom of it. But the conclusion one must draw is, for whatever reason, the Russian authorities are not buying into this construct anymore. Perhaps they think they can get away with it. Perhaps they think it doesn't really work for them anymore. And one of the questions is, so what can we do about this? So I think there's a few things we're going to need to spend time and effort on. Firstly, we do need to identify the causes for this change in behavior and try to understand why the Russian authorities are behaving differently to the construct they, like every other country, every country in the world signed up to the Geneva Convention, used to follow. The second thing is really important to do is to call out the violations. People who commit these atrocities commit them because they think they won't be seen or they won't be caught or they won't be punished. And the more you can change the risk calculation there, both in terms of the generals issuing the orders, and in terms of troops on the ground, the more likely you are to be able to deter, um, you know, some of these atrocities, um, at least to a degree at the margin. So you have to call out the violations and um, um, when you see them, and actually modern communications technology helps a lot with that. We can all see exactly what's happening in Ukraine. And then the third thing you need to do is find ways to investigate it, to invest in accountability. So that means collecting evidence of atrocities, and it means being ready for the moment when maybe there can can be some kind of judicial process. People often feel frustrated at moments like this about the scope for that. But, But actually, I used to work in the 90s on the war in Bosnia, and we were all tearing our hair out about whether there would any ever be accountability. But at the end of the process, various Serb, Bosnian Serb leaders ended up in the Hague in the um, you know, the international criminal courts and the tribunals and so on, and serve, serve prison time. So sometimes there can be accountability. There's also been cases recently, particularly in Germany, of Syrians who committed war crimes during the civil war there being prosecuted in Germany, convicted and imprisoned. So you had to invest in accountability as one of the planks of things you can do. But I don't want to come across as saying that these three sorts of solutions will change a lot in the short term because I'm, I think there's been a paradigm shift. We have to deal with the world as it is and, and work out other things that can be done to tackle these atrocities. Well, that, within that paradigm shift that you mentioned, is, is this something where we will see nations try to cooperate more with each other I think that's just with the the war in Ukraine. That's something that I believe Mr. Putin 
grossly miscalculated, that he was hoping there would be more uh, discoordination dis um, within Western countries and to, to have them divided on whether or not to support Ukraine. And pretty much every Western democracy is, is, is steadfast with, with what uh, Mr. Zelensky is, is doing there. And what I'm thinking of is in this accountability approach to make sure that those who commit crimes are called out for it and perhaps even persecuted for it, would that require nations working together to make sure there was no safe haven, that, that they could all sort of trundle off somewhere and, and sort of hide quietly against the authorities? And if that is the case, is it, how, how, how likely are we to get to that state? I think it's very difficult to know how this is going to play out. Um, obviously, when there's a large country perpetrating these atrocities, a permanent member of the Security Council, a nuclear state, it creates a situation none of us are used to dealing with. I, I think that um, I've heard lots of people make the observation you've just made that perhaps Mr. Putin didn't realize quite what a um, collective and at this stage anyway, determined response there would be from Western countries. Maybe he miscalculated. I think probably lots of people misjudged the determination of Ukraine, the people of Ukraine to resist and defend themselves. Um, and we'll have to see, this is still relatively early in this conflict, um, and no one can know exactly how it will play out. But... Um, you know, one of the things that if you want to sustain um, the higher moral standards that human species has managed to um, behave by over the last 50 years, that is necessary is to deal with these problems effectively when they occur. Mm -hmm. and, and this is something that your book covers, I believe, in a wide range that, you know, there, there are the conflicts and there's also the natural disasters, the humanitarian crisis, but we've also had a pandemic that's required some level of cooperation. Uh, coming, coming at this stage of it now, as we're, as we're trying to, to come out of COVID uh, and amid this, this conflict in, in Ukraine right now, what would you say that we need to focus on to handle global crises in the future to, to, to get into this new paradigm of challenges? Well, it was extremely frustrating. And I talked a lot about this in the book to deal with the impact of the pandemic on very vulnerable countries. Um, mm. And it was frustrating because it was clear a lot of, a, a, a lot of the things that needed to be done were very clear because these very poor countries suffered a huge economic um, contraction. And the last time they'd experienced that was in the financial crisis in 2007-8. And at that time, there was actually rather a good response coordinated through the G20 and the international financial institutions to protect those very vulnerable countries' economies. And the same thing should have happened in 2020. Um, but they didn't happen. And that speaks to the state of geopolitics and um, national preoccupations in lots of other countries. I think um, there's a number of things that will need to be lessons that are learned in a substantive 
way and which we're just still in the foothills of coming out of the pandemic. The first is the value of big investments in um, surveillance. The second is uh, so that you spot problems earlier. The second is the things you can do to prepare if pandemics um, are going to be, as it seems they may well be for a variety of reasons, something we have to deal with more often. And and so, for example, um, having excellent communication systems so that you can get the information um, on what this new virus or problem is to people in a trusted way as fast as possible. Investing heavily in, as was done well for uh, the coronavirus, in virus analysis and the DNA sequencing and all of those things which enable you to identify the particular biology, if you like, of the problem each time it arises and pouring money as quickly as possible and capability, scientific capability into response measures, whether they are therapeutics or vaccines. But also um, trying to make sure that you think about the economic consequences of these these kind of big events, because we have a big toolkit, if only we're willing to use it um, on the economic side. And um, we must really try to make sure that in future events, the world does a better job in using the economic toolkit than it than it has done in the um, case of the coronavirus. Right. And in terms of going forward, one of the things I, I noticed in, in your book towards the, the end uh, about, about going forward is, is you make the you make the case that humanitarian agencies, kind of regardless of what the challenge is, will will have to keep kind of hacking away, doing what they're doing now, but perhaps better and 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 quicker. But there's a point that you bring up about creating opportunities to hear voices in crisis and to find ways to listen to them, and and also making that perhaps a process of evaluation for how well humanitarian uh, agencies are, are handling this. Is, is there something that you can say about that? Yeah, I mean, this was one of the things that I felt more and more strongly as my years at the UN coordinating all these efforts um, passed. The, the fundamental problem is that people caught up in crises have very little voice. No one listens to them. They're always frightened. They are marginalized. They're extremely vulnerable. And humanitarian agencies, by and large, do a good job in looking after them. But the humanitarian agency's line of accountability goes to the people who give them their money. And you can understand that. You have to keep the donors willing to finance activity. But I think it would be a big improvement in the humanitarian system if we built up systems which forced all the agencies and the donors also to listen more systematically to what people caught up in crises say they most want, and then to make sure we give the people the things they say they want. Um, Because one of the consequences of this fragmented humanitarian system we talked about is um, agencies tend to do the things they always do. So if you're the World Food Programme, everything looks to you like a problem which is solved by giving people food Um, and so on if you're the other agencies whereas in fact sometimes people might want other things and uh, the best way to help people i came to the conclusion is to give them more of the things they say they want and 
hearing their voice by creating systems which requires the agencies to ask people what they want and then report back on whether they gave it to them or not would help a little bit to deal with this accountability mismatch. Right on. Well, Mark Wilcock, I think that's about our time for today. And I, I want to thank you for covering such a, a wide range of pressing and challenging topics. And uh, your, your forthcoming book titled Relief Chief, Manifesto for Saving Lives in Dire Times, uh, should very much be a must read for, uh, for those who are interested in improving the state of humanitarian assistance and really getting at a place to deal with the new paradigm shift challenges going forward. So, uh, Mark, I want to thank you once again for, for joining us on, on GDP. It's a pleasure. Really interesting conversation. Thank you so much. <laughs>